If you have your Bibles this morning, yes, we will be back in Proverbs chapter 22. Somebody asked me one time uh, if I could sum up one, put learning the Bible or the importance of learning the Bible into one word, what would it be? I didn't have to think about it because it was something that I had worked out in my life many, many years ago. And uh, when he asked me that question, he says, if you could just summarize one word that would sum up if you really wanted to learn the Bible, what one word would be the key aspect to it? And I told him it would be the word context. You have to put the Bible into a context. Everything that, you know, and there's a lot of good guys out there that I read and, you know, and I get stuff, send people send me stuff all the time. And they, they, they're, they're great guys. They love the Lord and they believe the Bible and all that stuff. But I've noticed that when somebody gets off track in the Bible, it'll always be due to the fact that they haven't done the first thing you need to do, and that is establish the context. You never look at a word in a verse without establishing the context of the verse. You never look at the verse in a chapter without establishing the context of the chapter. You never stack a chapter in the Bible, uh, in the book, without establishing the context of the book. And you never take the book of the Bible without establishing the context of that book within the, within the Bible itself. Context is key. And we have been looking at the book of Proverbs, and, and what I always try to do in teaching you the Bible and giving you everything that you need to be everything that uh, God has called you to be, uh, is to, uh, to help you understand some of the great truths of the Word of God. And I'm forever pointing out the context of things. Many times on Thursday night when somebody will ask a question, uh, the answer is obvious if they would just look at the context. And I, I, I put it before you all the time. And we've been coming through the book of Proverbs. That's how we've been doing it. That's how we do everything in the Bible. And uh, if you don't have a context of what you're looking at within the parameters, then please don't try to tell me what, you, what you're believing without the context. The context a text without a context is a pretext. And you've got to be able to establish that. And in the book of Proverbs, we have been doing that. And last week, we looked at a great verse, put it into the proper context, uh, that was important to everybody who will ever get into the ministry or certainly uh, part of any church. And uh, our, our key verse, it was a key verse, uh, just one verse we looked at, and it was dealing with those uh, who, through their unbiblical way of dealing with issues, uh, will be used of the devil to bring discord and, and dysfunction into the body of Christ. You know, the Bible never has suggested that there would not be issues within any church. I think that's a pipe dream that people uh, look for. And uh, I have learned years ago that wherever you got movement, you have friction. But in any situation, there will always be a biblical way to handle it. And God gave us a biblical way to handle it so no damage will get done uh, to the cause of Christ. And, and I want to say something to you. Whatever you're going through in life, whatever wrong someone has done to you, whatever you feel some injustice has been done to you, put it into a context. It's not about us. It's always about the cause of Christ. We can take something personal, make an issue out of it. And even though we may be right, and I'm not saying there isn't time that you don't deal with things. I'm not suggesting that at all. But what I am saying to you that 
The old adage, God first, others second, and me last, is a great concept to understand simply because it's not about us here. It's about the cause of Christ. And it's about us doing something or saying something or doing something out of line that causes damage to the cause of Christ. Bitterness is a terrible thing. A bitterness is like a poison, but, un, uh, un, and, but unfortunately, or fortunately, a person who was bitter is like someone who has taken poison and hoped that it kills the other person. The other person never understands or knows about the bitterness, but you carry it around all your life. And it's things like that, that that God has given us through the Word of God for every situation that we'll face. When, when a Christian will not follow that process, that is clearly laid out in the Bible to resolve any issues. Then it becomes clear that their goal was not to solve the issue, but they have another agenda that they want to follow. And, and we've all seen it. If you've been in the ministry or worked with me in any sort of time or have been in other churches, you see it happen all the time. People talk about the perfect church concept. I always have the joke that, if you're looking for a, I had a guy one time on the phone, he said, well, I'm looking for the perfect church. And I said, well, if you find it, don't join it. Because it won't be perfect anymore. There is no perfect church. There is no church that does not have issues. If there was such a thing as a perfect church, you know what it would be? It would not be a church that never has any issues. But the perfect church, according to the Bible, would be one that handles the issues through the Bible. That's the perfect way to do it. We've talked about Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16, where it talks about the six things that God hates, the seventh being an abomination. These have been collectively called the sins of the saints. They're the things that God's people love to do. Lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked imagination, feet that be swift and running to mischief, a false witness. And then, of course, the seventh one, which makes it an abomination, according to God, is sowing discord among the brethren. We looked at all these things last week, and I showed you out of that verse how that, how that you dealt with it. I showed you that Paul, uh, you know, uh, had, to, had to deal with it in, in the same issues in his ministry. And he said to mark those people and then to avoid them. And then I showed you, you know, that in 1 John where John had to deal with it. And then I took you back way when we started our church. The first series I taught you was the rebuilding of the city back in Nehemiah and Ezra and the nine gates. And I showed you how that those nine gates are, are ways into a church. And one of those was a way out, and it was the dung gate. So we laid that out last week, and today I want to move on to the next set of verses. And I want to kind of tie them together and help you to see it. And today we're going to move on into Proverbs chapter 22, and we'll look at uh, three verses today. Believe it or not, we're going to get through three. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 11, 12, and 13. He says, He that loveth pureness of heart, for the grace of his lips the king shall be his friend. The eyes of the Lord preserve knowledge, and he overthroweth the words of the transgressor. The slothful man saith, There is a lion without. I will be slain in the streets. Marion, you're staying way in the back there. Would you stand up and ask God's blessing on the service this morning for me? Lord, 
Thank you, Marion. Now, verse 11 says, He that loveth pureness of heart, for the grace of his lips the king shall be his friend. Now, I know, then you know, that when we teach the Bible here to give the right context, the Bible has three applications to it. Historically, he's obviously talking about uh, the time period that he lives in and all that's happening there. Uh, inspiration will be an application to me and you. But doctrinally, it'll be a prophetic application to it. And I want to—I always like to give them to you so you can have a complete understanding of the book of Proverbs. So let's quickly talk about the—let's talk about the doctrinal first. Now, the doctrinal application to all three of these verses, but we're looking at verse 11 right now, will be a reference to Christ on the throne. Anytime, whether it be in the major prophets, minor prophets, the Psalms, or wherever you go— and you find a reference to Christ as king. The context will always be the millennial reign of Christ. At the second coming of Christ, he is crowned king of kings and the Lord of lords. And at that point, you find the reference to him as king in the Bible. And in particular here, this verse will be a reference to the people in the millennium, the nations. And you'll find all this in what I think is the key verse on the millennial in the Old Testament would be Zechariah chapter 14. A lot of information there. And in particular, a reference to the people in the millennium, the nations who love the righteous reign of Christ that is over the whole earth. Now, when you go through the Psalms the next time, take slow down a little bit and, and, and do this and you'll get it out of the way. Or you can go on the website and get the book of Psalms that we broke down for you. The book of Psalms is a great book. But in a doctrinal sense, the book of Psalms breaks down into just the three sections. You'll have some of the Psalms that deal with the Jew going through the tribulation, and we call those the tribulation Psalms. You have them praying and Christ coming back at the second coming, and then we call them the uh, second coming Psalms. And then you have what we call the millennial Psalms. And they'll always be the ones that, that uh, you know, are praising the Lord, all ye lands, you know, talks about Christ being the king. And the millennial Psalms will show you that when Christ comes back in the millennium, in the great eight chapters, and we're going to finish this up in Institute this week, we started it last month, uh, will be Ezekiel chapter 40 through chapter 48, which are the eight greatest chapters in all of the Bible on the millennial reign of Christ. And, you know, the millennial reign of Christ is really misunderstood a lot today. There's not a lot of people who understand it. I, I told the guys in Institute, I, I don't know if, other than Clarence Larkin's book, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, you know, I don't know of any book that's out there uh, that really does it justice. They all get a, a, a thwarted view of the millennium or don't know anything about it at all. And it's a situation where in the millennium, when Christ comes back, he establishes a righteous reign on this earth for 1,000 years. In the New Testament, the chapter will be Revelation chapter 20. And for 1,000 years, he rules over the earth before eternity begins. And the Bible says that he comes and takes it by force, and he rules it with a rod of iron, and he enforces the world with his righteousness that everybody, there'll be no more crooked politicians, there'll be no more backdoor deals, there'll be no under-the-table deals. It's going to, everything is going to run right by the Word of God because he's on the throne. And it's an incredible time. And the Bible is filled with people who love that. They love not having to be afraid of anything anymore. They love that nobody is going to do them an injustice. And they actually live and thrive in a, in a, in a society that is run by righteousness. 
in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. I've told you before, and we've taught the book of Matthew, it's called the Sermon on the Mount. But in, in, in particular, what you have in those three chapters, uh, we know that in the book of Matthew, context is the Christ coming to the nation of Israel as the king of the Jews. And we see there, as he's coming to the nation of Israel, that uh, he's laying out in those three chapters the structure. We, we call it the constitution of the millennial reign of Christ. Just like we have a constitution that our country runs by, Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is the constitutional structure of the kingdom when he comes. And in Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, talking about in connection with Proverbs chapter 22, verse 11, it says this, Blessed are the pure in heart. And that's what Proverbs 22, verse 11 says, He that loveth pureness of heart. So it says within this kingdom, doctrinally, that blessed is the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And of course, they're talking about in the millennial reign of Christ. Now, putting the doctrinal aside for a moment, let's look at the practical, how it fits for you and for me. The Bible tells us that God uh, is pure in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 13, particularly talking about his eyes in that passage. And it also tells us in Psalms 119, verse 140, uh, that the Bible, the Word of God, is pure. So when a, when a Christian has a pure heart, now a pure heart doesn't mean that it's, you're, not, you're not a sinner anymore. A pure heart, and we all have sin, we're all going to make mistakes. But even in the flesh that we struggle with every day, you can have a pure heart. And the pure heart is not about anything else than your motive for what you're doing for the Lord. So when a Christian has a pure heart, a pure heart and a pure motive toward God's work, then he will speak out of the abundance of that heart, Matthew 12, 24, with a pure motive, and the things that come out of his mouth, the things that he said, will be based on his relationship with God, and grace will come from his lips. Note in verse 11, the king shall be his friend. In the Bible, there's two men that the Bible tells us that are God's friend. One of them in Isaiah chapter 41, verse 8, is Abraham. The other one in Exodus chapter 33, verse uh, uh, 11, uh, 11, I believe it is, is, is Moses. And both have pure motives in what they do. But at the same time, both make boatloads of mistakes. I'm not condoning the dumb things that we do. But being a dumb person who does dumb things, I'm looking for sympathy this morning. We all do dumb things. But the thing in the midst of what all you endeavor to do for God, you need to keep your motive pure. You do for Him simply based on your love for Him for what He's done for you. You don't do it to get something. You don't do it to get some position. You don't do it to have, meet some girl that you like or some guy, so now you're suddenly spiritual, so they'll look at you. Oh, yes, it happens. You do it because your motive is pure. We all struggle with things in life. We always will till we get our new glorified body. In me, which that is my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. But even in that state, if a man or a woman puts his heart into the things of God and into the Word of God, you come away struggling as we do with our flesh, with a pure motive to do what God wants you to do. And in time, even the flesh gets somewhat easier. And based on Proverbs 22, uh, 11, our being God's friend will be depend on simply two things. 
our pure heart and motive to do His work. You know, you got to ask yourself the question, why are you here today? We do things in our Christian life without ever stopping and thinking why we do it. And the real question for all of us here, really, is why are you here today? There's some people here today because your spouse would be mad if you didn't come. And it was easier to come today than to have a fight this afternoon. Some of you came today because, as I said a little bit ago, you got your eye on some gal or some guy. And uh, you want to, you know, you want to be here because they're here. Some of you are here because you just have good friends and you want to hang out. And I, and I know that's a very small, minute uh, fraction of this church. But the most of you are probably here today, if I know you well enough, and I think I do. It's because you love the Lord, you love the Word of God, and your motive in your heart is to be everything that God wants you to be. You're not perfect. You're going to have some issues. You're going to struggle with things. But at the end of the day, when all else has fallen down, you're going to stand. And that's the key. That's the key. Uh, So the first thing is our pure heart to do God's work. That'll be grace with the right motive. And then the second thing will be the truth that we speak with our lips through grace based on what we have in our heart. You know, John chapter 1, verse 17, and really, all of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you want to you put him into one verse that says everything about him, and you could go a lot of other places, but if you just want one verse to put the Lord Jesus Christ into a context in your life and my life, it would be John chapter 1, verse 17, where it says that the law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. He had, the, he had the truth, but he had the grace to be able to give it. My job here for you and what we do, and you saw it, what we talked about a little earlier yesterday and all the ministries that God has given us, all the young men and young ladies that are holding down the line and doing, it, it comes down to two things. It comes that I teach you the truth. I can teach you the truth. Now listen to me. I can teach you the truth, but only God can teach you grace. And he does that through you building a relationship with the truth that I give you. I can give you the truth, but God has to build the grace in your life. And he does that by taking the truth, you building a relationship with him, and then with a pure motive, giving back to him based on your understanding what he's given to you. Now, now look at verse 12 here a moment. Next verse. The eyes of the Lord preserve knowledge. And overthroweth, and he overthroweth the words of the transgressors. Now, here again, let's look at the doctrinal first. This again will be a reference to the millennial reign of Christ. The Bible says here, God's eyes, that's the Holy Spirit going to and fro into all the earth, uh, uh, doing uh, his uh, uh, rod of iron millennial reign. He's searching out every iniquity, making sure that righteousness is the, is the law of the day. And, uh, and during that time, he will preserve the truth the knowledge of God uh, throughout all the earth. And he's going to do that through us. Bible talks about over there in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, that if we suffer with him now, we'll reign with him over there. We know that God has a millennial inheritance for each of us. We either get that inheritance or lose that inheritance based on the motive and the things that we do. But he has a millennial reign for us, a a reign with him, a joint heir reign with him. 
You know, the millennium is, from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7, is the beginning of God establishing His government. All down through history, man has looked for and built on the idea of a perfect utopia. Uh, It's a place where everything is perfect, everything is wonderful, everything is perfect. All the great philosophers wrote about it. Everybody was looking someplace for a time to come. Uh, The world today, the religious world, thinks that they're building a better world, that someday it will all live in peace and harmony without the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, that isn't going to happen. You know, the beginning of that government starts when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back. And He sets everything in order. And Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 6 and 7 says, Of the increase of that government peace, there shall be no end. And what God does is when He comes down and He establishes His righteous reign on this earth, His eyes are everywhere and it preserves the knowledge that is filling this earth through you and me. Because we are reigning with Him all over this planet. The millennium is an incredible concept. And we will reign with Him to establish that righteous reign and then we will maintain it. It's hard for us to grasp that today in the world that we live in where there's, there's corruption and sin and, and wrong at every turn. But imagine yourself being in a world where there's a hundred million people uh, in glorified bodies that know everything you think. And you get on the elevator with a couple of them and they're going up someplace and you're thinking you're going to do something and suddenly look at you and they say, I wouldn't. That's going to be the rule of the day. It's going to be the rule of the day. We will, Christ will establish it with us when we come back, that reign of righteousness, and then we will maintain it with him through that joint heir. Okay, now, inspirationally. This verse is a great illustration of what God is doing today uh, through his word, uh, his eyes, his viewpoint. You know, Proverbs chapter 15, verse 3 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place beholding uh, the, uh, the evil and the good. Now, the word here that we want to look at in our proverb is the word, to, is the word preserve. God preserving His word. What God, you know, I hear a lot today, and I've heard it all of my life. I, I, I've been in the issue over the word of God since I first got right with God back in the, back in the uh, early 70s. And I've heard all the arguments, I've read all the books, both sides. I understand the issue uh, very clearly. And, I, you know, and, and what we believe here is simply the fact that uh, we believe that the King James Bible is the absolute perfect Word of God. We believe that it was inspired by God and that it now preserved by God in its final form exactly the way that God wants us to have it. Every word, every chapter, everything. We don't fall into the trap that somebody says, well, you know, that Bible has been redone by man all down through history and man has had his hands all over it and all that stuff and how could it still be perfect? It's called the preservation of God. How could the Lord Jesus Christ come through a a sinner like Mary, be virgin born without the influx of a man, but come through a woman who was a sinner who needed, as she all claimed, God was her Savior too, How could God bring His Son through this world system and yet still have Him sinless? It's the same system. 
And I hear a lot today about, well, I, I don't believe the King James Bible is the Word of God, but I believe that the Bible is inspired, you know, that it was given by inspiration. And I understand all that, but I have another question for you. What good is the fact that God inspired something once upon a time if I can't get my hands on it today? I could give a flip about what God inspired way back when. You and I got to face tomorrow. There ain't nothing in this world that's right side up. Everything is upside down. I need something that wherever I have to face, I have truth. And I'm not going to the internet to get it. I'm not going to read some man's book. I'm going to go to the Word of God first because there lies the truth preserved for me. Just the way God wanted me to have it. When I read it, I know that's God's viewpoint. And I, I, I tell you, when you have a pure motive with God in your heart, you know what that translates down to? It translates in your heart, you want to make in God's viewpoint your viewpoint. That's what the verse is saying here. I want to see everything the way God sees it. And that Bible says the eyes of the Lord are in every place. You know, Psalms 12, verse 6 and 7 says, The word of the Lord are pure words, as silver, tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord, thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. It's showing us that God today has given us His word and preserved it for us. He says, purified seven times. I'm not even going to get into the seven English translations that went with your King James Bible as it went through. The language changed and you come up with the pure, uh, purest form of it. I won't even get into that. I won't even get into the 6,000, 7,000 years of God's timeline when he says purified seven times. The concept of the Word of God being preserved, God preserving His Word... Over there in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, it says, The Word of God is quick and, and powerful and more sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing even the center of the soul and the spirit. And then it says in verse 13, Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are open, are naked and open under the eyes. You know what the context of his sight and the eyes are? It's the Word of God. God looks inside you and me. Jeremiah 23, 24 says, Can any hide himself in secret places? That I shall not see him, saith the Lord. Did not I fill heaven and earth, saith the Lord. Psalm 33, 18 says, Behold, the eye of the Lord is upon them that fear him, upon them that hope in his mercy. You know, you ever wonder why people hate the Bible? I mean, Christian people. I mean, I know that sounds like a terrible thing to say, but you know, I've seen, I've seen, I've seen people who were the sweetest, godliest people you ever met in your life that were Christian, right up to the point that you talk about the preserved Word of God, and then the fangs come out. The venom drips. You know why people hate the Bible? I mean, I know why unsaved people hate it, because they hate God. But you know why some of God's people hate it? You know why some of God's people will never read it? And they always have a problem with it? You'll get them to come to church, but they'll never crack that Bible. 
You'll get them to come to church and hear the sermons, but they'll never open up the Bible. They'll never study the Bible. They'll never read the Bible. You know why that is? Did you ever figure it out? I'll tell you why. Because the Bible is the only book in the history of the world and on the planet and the universe. When you open up this book and you start to read it, it starts to read you. And people don't want that. We don't like to be told what's wrong with us. See? We don't like to hear the negative things about us. All of my life, I've been told by people who claim to be my friend, and I was their pastor, and they loved me. If you see me stepping out of line, you tell me. And I did. And that was the end of our relationship. <laughs> it's the way it works. I don't get mad about that. I understand that. Bible thing, when you have a pure motive... When you have an attitude toward the Word of God that you want what He sees to be what you see, the Bible says that he that loveth the honeycomb, even the bitter things are sweet. Psalms 11.4 says, The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold His eyelids. Try the children of men. Now, in our dispensation here, the church age, these eyes we're God sees with will be, will be found in, in the Word of God. And I'm not just talking about any Word of God. I'm talking about a King James 1611 authorized version, which is God's viewpoint, absolute, perfect. How He sees it. How He sees us. How He sees life. How He sees the world. Laid out in a book. Now, the Holy Spirit of God, when you have the pure motive in heart and you want to do what God wants you to do, then the Holy Spirit of God will take the book of God and through the Holy Spirit of God, He will illuminate your eye, either full of light, like we saw last week, and you'll see everything that He sees. Luke chapter 24, verse 45 says, Then He opened up their understanding that they might understand the Scriptures. That's what He does. But you don't have the right motive, you don't have the right heart, you don't want to see things that God sees, and you don't like the fact that that book reads you, you ain't getting squat. You'll have to get it from other guys' books, you'll have to get it from preachers that don't know what they're preaching about, you'll have to get it from a dead church where nothing's going on, you have to get it in a place where God is moving and doing things. You have to get it from a place that teaches the book, that gives you the book, and there's plenty of places out there. You want to get to the place where when, uh, you get around people that are so filled with God and the Word of God and the Spirit of God that in the summertime when a mosquito bites them, he flies away saying there's power in the blood. <laughs> God's viewpoint. How he sees it all laid on in a book. And you and me coming with the pureness of a motive. I didn't say you're sinless. I said in a pure motive that you come to God saying, Lord, I'm a wretched sinner. I don't deserve anything but to be in hell and burn for eternity in a lake of fire, screaming my lungs out. But Lord, it's grace and truth. And I'll tell you what, I need your grace to learn your truth. And I want to take everything I can get from you, and I want it for one reason. I want to see everything in life the way you see it. 
God says, okay, guys, open up his understanding and give him the book. In the Song of Solomon, what a great book that is. You know, in the Song of Solomon, it's broken around two different concepts. One, it's Christ looking at the church and saying to her how he views her. And the rest of the book is the church looking at Christ and telling him how he views her. And, and I'll be very honest with you, and I, I know you're all building your own relationship with God here, and I, I praise the Lord for it, and you're doing wonderful, and I love you very much, but I want to tell you something. You'll never have the relationship with God and His Son that you need to have till you first understand the book of Solomon. One, how He sees you, and two, how you should see Him. I believe that most of God's people are saved. And I believe that they, that they, you know, they go to church, do all those things. That's great. That's no proof positive that they have a real biblical understanding of a relationship with God. It's hard to have a relationship with somebody you don't know. And you'll never know him until you understand the Song of Solomon. When he looks at you, what does he see? We in the idea today that God, Christ cares about who wins the Super Bowl. When a guy makes a touchdown, he gets down on the knees and thanks God. Guy hits a home run. He winds on the bases. They actually believe that God is saying, okay, boys, let's get the big screen on. Football game's coming on. We're going to see who's going to win the World Series. He doesn't. When you read the Song of Solomon, you'll find that the Lord Jesus Christ only cares about one thing. It's not tsunamis. It's not the war in the Middle East. It's not all the who wins what sports game or the Olympics, who get, how many gets the gold. America, yeah, show those atheist communisms who's going to get all the gold. That's not the gold God's interested in. These guys work their whole life skiing down there. I watched a guy the other night flew off that thing on a whatever it was. <laughs> he's twisting around, flipping over, coming down, and hits that thing, ah, ah, and everybody goes crazy. And he stood up there, and he put that gold medal around him, and he was holding that thing. He worked all his life for that. You know what? In heaven, they paved the streets with that. Mm-hmm. Wrong perspective. I, I, is that the gold you want? I mean, is that the gold you want? You want it down here where, you know, I mean, uh, 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 what's in your wallet? <laughs> you see, I'm going to tell you something. If, if the Bible comes down to one word context, the Christian life comes down to one word motive. Why are you here today? John, why did you take a team up there yesterday? Why did you guys go over to see that girl? Why did you play the song for her? Why, why did you go up there and work with those kids? Why did you, who taught the Bible up there yesterday? I don't even know. You're all so good. Who taught the Bible? Nobody? Would you play a tape? One of my tapes? You taught? Don't be modest. Who taught? You taught? Wait, you, you can't raise your hand? Put your hands up high. He taught and he taught. Okay, out of church. No, uh, you know, you know, it's, okay, you know what? Why'd you do that? Why? Why did you do that? Why did you take of your time when you could have been doing whatever you wanted to do? 
I mean, you're both good-looking guys. You could have a girlfriend. Why aren't you out looking for one? You're good-looking, too. I want you to know that. Why did you do those things, guys? I mean, you went up there. You slept in an uncomfortable place, probably. You had to be up early, stayed up late. Now, okay, you probably stayed at the Heaton's, and that's the Taj Mahal. That's where I stay when I go. But it's a thing where you, you gave up your time. You gave up that. You went up there. John, you took away from your time and all of those things. There. Why? Bob's getting ready to go. Why? Why did you do those things? Why are 80 of you going out this afternoon? You won't find a girlfriend out there. If you do, look at her teeth. I'm just going to tell you. It's like buying a horse. Why? Why are you here today? Why are you going to come back on Thursday night? Why, why do you do the things you do? I mean, it isn't to impress me or get me to love you. I already love you. I love you if you don't do anything. Uh, why, why? Why do you do it? I'll tell you why. Because the Christian life comes down to one word. It's the motive that you have. And it's pure. Once you start that pure motive to do what God wants you to do and be what God wants you to be, then you know you've got to learn more to keep that motive going. Because God's going to do more with you. I, I don't know where all this is going. It's going good. God keeps bringing people in. God keeps giving us places to go. It's a thing where it's a thing where you know you just keep doing what you need to do. I'm out of this thing, man. I don't have any control over it. I just get up here and say what God tells me to say. I don't go to Lincoln. I don't go to there. I don't go here. I just get out of the way. You don't need me. You just need me to crack the whip every once in a while. But you know, you need a new young guy. You need me to give you what I've given these older guys. And you older guys need a refresher course every once in a while. But that's where it ends. You're running it. You guys are doing it. How many years did we spend together, John? How many years did we spend together? I mean, a hundred at least. <laughs> Bob's been with me for off and on forever. I mean, we spent years together. John's been with me forever. I mean, you guys are now payback. God has brought you back to do for me, to help me. You know why? Because wherever we were, wherever what we did, however we were separated, we all had one thing in common, a pure motive to do what God wanted us to do. I know Bob had to take some time off to make the movie Top Gun, but he's back. It was on this week three or four times. I always tell him. I just watch it up to that point when he's in the movie, then I'm off. I turn it off. <laughs> Go to Criminal Minds. Get some great sermon illustrations out of Criminal Minds. In Song of Solomon, chapter 5. In Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verse 12. The church is talking to Christ, the bride. And in Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verse 12, the church says, his eyes are the eyes of a dove. Then in chapter 4, Christ talks to the bride. And he says, Behold, thou art fair, my love. Behold, thou art fair. 
thou hast dove's eyes within thy locks. You see? The love of Christ's life sees things like he does. Now, I don't know if you caught the difference. With him, 512, his eyes are the eyes of a dove. In 4.1, it said, Behold, thou art fair, my love. Behold, thou art fair. Thou hast dove's eyes within thy locks. Because hair in the Bible will be a picture of your submissiveness to his authority. Oh, <laughs> Seeing the world through his eyes. Seeing everything in your life through his eyes. And as I said, the key word here will be preserved. God has given you a book that is his eyes, his viewpoint, his point of view. It's a book that if you begin to read it, it will begin to read you. When you have the right motive, pureness of heart, that book will tell you what he sees. It'll tell you how he sees it. And it'll also tell you why he sees it that way. In people ministry that we have here, which is our counseling ministry, and there's some 89, 80, 90 people involved in that. We meet not this Saturday, the following Saturday. And we're going through dealing with all the problems. And you work with me in, in discipling and teaching and all the things that you do. And I've told you many, many times the concept that when you're dealing with issues in life, you're dealing with people, dealing with problems, their issues, or even your issues. The concept you always want to remember is to be smarter than the problem. That simply means see it from his perspective. That means don't see an issue as it appears, but see it as it really is. And you get that by seeing what he sees, how he sees it, and why he sees it that way. In Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 20, he's talking about the last days. And of course, if you know anything about the Bible at all, you know the last days is the last 2,000 years from Christ to the rapture or second coming. And he says there in Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 20, talking about the things of God, he says in the latter days that we will consider it perfectly. They couldn't consider it perfectly in the Old Testament because they didn't have the complete Word of God. In the latter days, you and I can consider everything about God perfectly because we have the preserved Word of God that He's given us. The Bible says in, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, that uh, the Bible, uh, the Word of God, is a more sure word of prophecy. And you get into that verse and look at the context. The context is more sure than what? And the context is more sure than the very voice of God. We got a lot of people who says, well, God spoke to me. God did this. God, God showed me this. God spoke to me. Let me tell you something. God will not speak to you outside the principles of that book. Amen. As a nation, when you see yourself through the eyes of God, then God will preserve your nation. He did it with England from 1600 up to 1900. He did it with America from 1700 on the way up to about 1900. This country knew God, knew who He was, reverenced who He was, knew who was, what His Word was, believed that book, stuck with it, operated by it, even our own government, and God preserved it. Look where it's at today. It's like the Titanic. It's going down by the bow. 
And while this whole nation, like the Titanic, is, is sinking, everybody in Congress is rearranging deck chairs. But also as an individual, as a Christian. When you look at life and everything in it, through that book, the eyes of God, seeing what He sees, how He sees it, and why He sees it that way, He'll preserve you. Doesn't mean He won't come down and whack you when you need it. But it'll be Him whacking you. He'll preserve you. He'll preserve your marriage. He'll preserve your kids. He'll preserve your ministry. He'll preserve your nation. You know, I've always been an avid student of history. I learned many, many years ago that if you really want to know what's true in the Bible, you have to have two concepts. You have to have what the Bible says, and then you have to find the true church from Antioch that stayed true and see what they believed all the way through. You have to have the biblical evidence, but you have to have the historical evidence of the church of Jesus Christ. A lot of weird ideas coming up now. And of course, the way you know that it isn't true is by going back and finding that the church of Jesus Christ for, what, 1,900 years? Never believed that. So you're going to kid me that some guy now found the truth that they missed for 1,900 years? (laughs) Sell that to somebody else. But history is a great concept to watch. And I've watched down through history how God has preserved a nation. And then I've watched that nation get rid of the Word of God, turn their back on Christ, and then I've watched through history the decay of that nation. Mel Sabaka said something to me one time that I never forgot. I'm not sure where he got it. But he said, no nation has ever survived past 200 years once they dumped the King James Bible. Now, when he meant survived, he didn't mean that they went belly up and sunk into the ocean. He meant that they went into complete anarchy and apostasy. And I've watched that over the years, and I've seen that to be true. You know, there was a time when Czechoslovakia, through John Huss, almost everybody in Czechoslovakia, through his preaching and his ministry, was a born-again believer. What happened to Czechoslovakia? It isn't even on the map anymore. I'll tell you what happened. They dumped the book. From 1600 to 1900, the saying was that the sun never set on the British soil. They had colonies all over this world, everywhere. I mean, they touched the lives of millions and millions and millions of people. I remember back in, in, in 1588, you had two great seafaring nations. One was Spain and the other one was England. And Philip of Spain wanted to, through the popes, uh, wanted to defeat and take back uh, England, bring it back under the Roman Catholic control because she had broken with Rome and, uh, you know, under Henry VIII. And so they wanted to bring him back in. So uh, the, the greatest navy in the world at that time was the Spanish Armada. England did not have a navy. Few ships, but not a navy anywhere to compare. And in 1588, the Spanish Armada left Spain to come around and go up and to, and to come up the English Channel and to take back and defeat the Navy and then land their troops and take back England for the Roman Catholic Church. And England didn't have a, nation, didn't have a, didn't have a Navy. But, you know, back then she didn't need a Navy because she had a book. 
And just as the Spanish Armada was coming up to do there, a great typhoon come up and sank the Spanish Armada and they never made it to England. And you have a King James 1611 authorized version today, which is in your hands, in your lap today, that you're reading it, because God preserved a nation to give it to you. And then along about 1900, she does the same thing that all the other nations do. She dumped it. Look where she's at today. Bankrupt. World War II, bankrupt her. America was the same thing. When America was infused in 1700, uh, when the pilgrims showed up in their Plymouth and all those things, they had, uh, not in their Plymouth, at Plymouth. <laughs> yeah, they're like Acts 1. All the apostles were in one accord. <laughs> and David's triumph was heard throughout the land. But anyway, had the mufflers off. But anyway, I don't know what I was getting ready to say. Oh, when, when, when this country was founded on the King James Bible, when Thomas Jefferson put the first draft together of our Declaration of Independence and sent it to the Founding Fathers, they sent it back and said, not enough references to God in it. This nation can never forget what God has done, how God has brought us, and why we were established. You know, you go up to Boston, Princeton, Yale, Cambridge, Dartmouth College, some of the most pagan, godless places on the planet today. When they were started, they were started to train missionaries for the American Indians. See what happened? But it's true as an individual, too, a Christian. When you look at life and everything in it through the book, then, then God will take care of you. And I've watched not only the decay of nations, but I've watched the decay of God's people, the church. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 says that the Word of God is like salt. Salt is a preservative. As long as the nation has the Word of God in their midst, God will preserve it. As long as your family honors the Word of God and does what it's supposed to do with it, God will honor it and preserve it. But the Bible says the salt has lost its savor. And we've seen not only the erosion of our country because of rejection of the Word of God, we've seen the erosion of the church because of their rejection of the Word of God. And then consequently, the families reject it, so we've seen the erosion of the family. Now look at the last part of verse 12. And he that overthroweth and he overthroweth the words of the transgressors. Now in Isaiah 54, 7, it says this. And this is a good verse if you're ever getting beat up. It says, no, no weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper, and every tongue that shall rise up against thee in judgment thou shalt condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is of mine, saith the Lord. Now you know what that verse is saying? That verse is saying that your righteousness that you have is of His, and what you're doing, you're doing for Him, so you don't have to worry about all the weapons that are formed against you. They're not formed against you, they're formed against Him, and He'll take care of it. God's hand of preservation in your life, God's hand of preservation in your family, based on one thing, your relationship with the Word of God that you, God has given you. You read it, it reads you, it changes you, and you bring yourself in line to it. And a true biblical work, not a work for God, but a work of God, that is based on the Bible, it will always stand the test of time. I have a message that I preach. I haven't ever preached it to you guys. I preached it when I used to preach all the time. <laughs> I still preach all the time. I mean, <laughs> other places. And it was simply a message titled, and I don't really title a lot of my sermons, but some of them you have to, to make it make sense. It was simply... Where are they now? 
You take the Jews, the history of God's people. For 4,000 years, the Babylonians, the Egyptians, the Hittites, the Persians, the Greeks, Rome, the Nazis, the communists, everybody on this planet wanted to wipe them out and take them, even today in the Middle East. And yet Babylon, Egypt, Hittites, Persia, Greece, Rome, the Nazis, the communists, where are they now? They're on the ash heap of history. The Hebrew language is the only ancient language that has survived today. The Egyptian language is not. The Hittite language is not anywhere. The Persian language, the Greek, even what they speak in, in, uh, in Greece is not the same Greek of history. It's all gone. And yet after 4,000 years of trying to wipe her out, Israel still stands. You know why? Because God's hand of, perver- uh, of per- preserving her is on her. And that's why they hate her. That's why the whole world hates Israel. They don't know this. They don't understand it. They're not that smart. But the reason why the whole world hates Israel is because the whole world for 4,000 years has tried to get rid of her, and she's still sticking around. And they can't understand that it's the hand of God in her world that keeps her. And it's the same way with God's church, any church. It will be here long after the person who doesn't like it, their life falls apart. The church that preaches the Bible and stands on the Bible will still be here when you lose your kids. It'll still be here when you overdose on drugs. It'll still be here when you, uh, you know, you get some girl pregnant. It'll still be here when you lose your marriage. It'll still be here when you drink yourself to death. Or it'll still be here when you live your life like some spiritual Pharisee that you think you've got all the answers where you don't know squat. Because God has preserved you. Now, here it comes. Here it comes. And that's why they'll hate you. They'll see in your life something that they don't understand because their life is a, is a toilet. Everything they touch falls apart. They have problem with their kids. They have problem with this. They have problem with that. And I'm, and I'm talking about God's people here. And those same people who are strong with everything will laugh at you and make fun of you because you believe that God has a book that will preserve you. Where are they now? Pretty good sermon. We got copies of them in the back. They're $200 a piece. You got to get one. <laughs> and they'll never figure it out. You know why? Because Amos 3.3 says, how can two walk together except they be agreed? You don't get God's viewpoint on things in life. You ain't going anywhere. Your eye will be full of darkness. You can't see anything the way God sees it. Oh, but they're so spiritual. I'll tell you what. Christian life comes down to one basic thing, successful or failure. You know what it is? It's the good or the bad choices we make. You listen to man you probably get a lot of bad choices in life. You follow your own heart, what you want to do, you'll probably get messed up in life and, and, and have a lot of problems. God's people all their lives have some of the most horrendous issues in their life that ruins and destroys everything in their personal life, in their families, in their marriages, in everything that they try to do, simply because they won't get God's viewpoint and learn to make the right choices based on what he wants them to do. 
story goes, a man went to heaven one time. You want to picture an illustration of where God's people are at? Here it is. A man went to heaven one time. Met St. Peter walking around. On every street of gold and every place he went, he saw thousands and thousands and thousands of clocks. He's looking around and he's saying, I, I didn't know, uh, are these going to be around in eternity? Because why do we have clocks for? St. Peter kind of laughed and chuckled and said, well, they won't be around then. The, the, the clocks are the way we keep tabs of things. He says, what do you mean? He says, everybody on earth has a clock up here that represents them. And every bad choice that they make in life, the clock moves. He said, wow. And he said, let me show you. So they took him over to Billy Graham's clock, and it hadn't moved hard at all. They took him over to, to John Huss's clock, and his clock hadn't moved hardly at all. He says, these guys, man, they must have really made some good choices. He, he, and he took him over to another clock, and it had barely moved. Fanny Crosby, and it had fairly moved. And then he says, he says can I see my clock? And St. Peter said, yeah, yeah, you can. We keep it over in the office. We use it for a fan. <laughs> Bad choices. Bad choices based on not seeing as he sees it. And sin will blind you to the truth. The only answer to life's issues will be the Word of God, which is preserved in a King James 1611 authorized version, and I don't care who tells you anything different. And Job 9.4, one of my favorite verses. What a great verse. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength, who hath hardened himself against him and prospered. And the answer is nobody. Nobody. Not in 6,000 years of history. No nation nor individual who ever threw away the preserving power of that precious book, the Word of God, and neither will any of us. Then verse 13, the last verse here we'll look at today. The slothful man saith, there is a lion without, I shall be slain in the street. Now, again, doctrinally, this will be a reference to the second coming of Christ. And we know in Revelation 5, 5 that Christ is called the lion of the tribe of Judah. And like a lion coming in, he's tearing everything up. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 2, it says, The, the fear of the king is as a roaring lion, whoso provoketh him uh, to anger, sinneth against his own soul. Uh, in Proverbs chapter 28, 1, it says, uh, 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 The wicked flee when no man pursueth, but the righteous be as bold as a lion. Uh, Hosea chapter 13, verses 5 through 8, he says, I did know thee in the wilderness and in the land of great drought, according to their pasture, so were they filled, and they were filled, and their heart was exalted, therefore they have forgotten me. Therefore I will be unto them as a lion, as a leopard. By the way, I will observe them. I will meet them as a bear that is bereaved of her whelps, and will rend the call out of their heart. And I will devour them like a lion, the wild beast shall tear them. That's a reference to Christ coming at the second coming of Christ and tearing things up. Now, on the flip side of that, if you know your Bible, and I know many of you do, you know that the devil also is portrayed as a roaring lion. The, the devil is the greatest imitator of Christ of anywhere in the Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14. He transformed into an angel of light. We know that. So the Bible says in 1 Peter 5, 8, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking who may devour. 
Now, most Christians have no real understanding of the devil, so they're afraid of him. They don't understand Job chapter 41, Job chapter 40, where God lays him out completely, and you see there's no reason to fear him. Uh, but it's that very fear that we have because we don't know him and understand him that he will use to defeat us. As a child of God, we never fear the devil, but as a child of God, you have to respect the devil for who he is. Bible says in 1 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 22, that we touch not the Lord's anointed. And the Bible says in Isaiah chapter 28, and Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14, that he is the Lord's anointed. So you don't touch him. Why, even Michael in Jude uh, chapter 1, verse 9, even Michael the archangel, great in power, when he was up against the devil, wouldn't bring against the railing accusation. He just said, the Lord rebuke thee. So you don't have to have to be afraid of him because he cannot devour you. But you need to respect him. And that's true. Uh, win or lose, uh, and, and, and as an unsaved man uh, uh, or woman, you will be devoured by the devil. There's no question about that. If you're sitting here this morning and you're, and you're unsaved, uh, God help you, uh, down the line someplace, you will probably get devoured. I mean, either in dope or in booze or in some, some kind of stronghold in your life. But a Christian can never be devoured. You know, there's a story back there in 1 Kings chapter 13, verses 11 through 34, which I think is a great story. And I've always thought that, and I always teach it to young men that are going into ministry because it's a, it's a great illustration of that. And back there you had a man, a young man of God, who got a message from God to go preach. And uh, so he's on his way, and the Bible says, uh, and I have a title for this sermon called, There Was an Old Prophet in Bethel. So he's on his way to go do the work, and he meets this old prophet. The old prophet says, where are you going? And he says, I've got a message from the Lord, and I'm going to go preach it, just like so many young men. And the old prophet said, well, I've got a message from God, and he told me to revise the message that you have. See, That's what they do. Where are you going, son? I'm going out to preach the Word of God with the greatest book the world has ever seen. Well, God showed me that that book that you're going to preach is not perfect. Let me show you one that is. So it works. So the young man yields, goes with him. And he winds up, make a long story short, God kills him, the young man. At verse 24 of that chapter says, And when he was gone, a lion met him by the way and slew him. And his carcass was cast in the way, and the ash stood by the carcass. Now God allows this young man who had a message, who listened to somebody else to take the message of God out of his hand, he gets killed. This is the picture of the, of the lion, the devil, coming down and taking your life. But I want you to see something here. Look at, in verse 28, later on in our story. The old man goes out, doesn't see the kid, Wonder what happened to him? And when he went out and found his carcass cast by the way, and the ass and the lion standing by the carcass, the lion had not eaten the carcass nor torn the ass. The devil can kill you, but he can't eat you. He couldn't devour that young man because that young man belonged to God. I don't have time to get into it today, but the young man is a picture of a Christian, and the ass is a picture of the nation of Israel. The devil only exists in the fear that we have of him by not understanding the greater is he that's in you that's in the world. 
and perfect love casteth out fear. Now, the devil can kill you, but he can't eat you. As a Christian, you never get devoured. He can get your flesh, but he can't get your soul. That's a picture of old, in an Old Testament picture of your New Testament salvation and your eternal security in Christ Jesus. Now, in Proverbs 22, verse 13, in the last part of that verse, it says, There is a lion without, and he shall be slain in the street. That's a great verse on why men and women, God's people, won't serve God all the way. I've seen God's people all my life that only go so far. They get saved, they get discipled, they come to church, but that's all the farther they'll ever go. They'll never step out and go with a team up into Lincoln. They'll never do this. They'll never take a prayer group. They'll never do this. They'll never do that. They come, they, they get so far in it, and then they won't go any farther. And I've seen many of God's people that way in all my years. See it all the time. Why people, you know, uh, and uh, 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 they're afraid. It's the reason. They're afraid. They will never allow the Word of God to preserve them and their family, so they only go so far, and then they get afraid of what's out there. Now, i got to say this in verse 13. Uh, the, verse guys, the guy says the guy is slothful. And we've studied him before in Proverbs. Proverbs 12, 15, 18, 19, 21, 22, 24, 26, all through Proverbs. And slothful defined in Proverbs, a slothful man is lazy, he's weak, he's always a coward, he never takes a stand for anything, he's wishy-washy. And as I said in Proverbs 28.1, the wicked flee when the man pursueth not, but the righteous are bold as a lion. And that is the word that's missing in Christianity today, a boldness. There's no boldness. There's no boldness for Christ or the cause of Christ. Or sometimes people just pick what they want to be bold about. Everybody is afraid of life, of the lion in the street. Oh, I don't want to get into ministry. I don't want to step out there. Oh, it's dangerous out there. Oh, there's this, there's that. I was taking teams one time over to, uh, I even forget where it was. There were so many places. It was, I think it was El Salvador when the war was going on, or maybe it was over in Europe when they were having all those problems over there. And I had a team of about 25 people that were going, and it was kind of a hairy deal. It was kind of a scary deal because the war was going on, and, and people were getting killed. Bombs were going off. And, you know, I remember one time we had a bunch of gals waiting uh, at a bus for the bus to come to pick them up. We were passing out tracks, and it was across from a hospital. And some old drunken guy, and everything had military guards on it because the rebels were trying to blow everything up. And so this old drunk guy comes up, and, you know, I pulled up there, and I said, okay, guys, I said, we're going to bus will be here in about... Four minutes. Let's just get ready to go. And this old man was out there drunk, and there was two guards over there at the gate. He started, I don't know what he was saying in Spanish, but he was throwing rocks at him. And they put up with it for a while, and he kept throwing rocks, and then he got really agitated, and he picked up a bottle or something and threw it at it and got smashed in front of one of the guys. He just took off his G3 and poof, shot him right in the street, right in front of my kids. They got on the bus really quickly. I had a guy one time, we were getting ready to go, and he says, i got to ask you a question. He says, how, how do you justify taking all these kids down here and all this stuff and doing the work of the Lord? He says, Aren't, uh, how, do you, how do you justify that? And I said, same way they did in the book of Acts. Same way they did in the book of Acts. You know what he was afraid of? Lying in the street. You see, some of God's people will only go so far, but when push comes to shove and you've got to really lay it on the line, 
You're not going. You're not going. Play it safe. Play it safe. And, and that's, the way, that's the way some of God's people are. There, there's a lack of boldness. They're afraid. They're afraid of everything. There's some parents that are absolutely afraid to discipline their kids the right way, the way they should. You know why? They're afraid they're going to lose them if they, if they take those spans. And they wind up losing them anyhow. They never understand that doing things biblically in your family, there's a preserving of that. We saw it last Sunday when we talked about our verse about the scorners. People are afraid to take a bold stand against a scorner. They're, they're afraid to say something to somebody. Well, I don't want to be in this, or I don't want to be that or that. Hey, look, if it's right, it's right. If it's wrong, it's wrong. Where's your boldness for the cause of Christ? And as the great Edmund Burke said, as I said last week, evil triumphs when good men do nothing. Because you're afraid. You're afraid. We're afraid to take a stand for the book. There's no boldness. We're afraid that, that somebody will, will, will laugh at us. Somebody will call us names or somebody will make fun of us because we believe a book. There's no boldness. There's nobody that takes a stand for anything anymore, for the most part. I mean, a child of God, I mean, if, if that Bible saved you, if that Bible preserves your family, if that Bible preserves everything in your life, don't you think it's worth taking a stand for? I mean, you're bold about everything else in life. My goodness, somebody pulls out in front of you a freeway, on front of the freeway, you're really bold. But somebody can say something against the Lord, somebody can do something here or do something there, and you just keep your mouth shut. You're afraid. Afraid of the lion out in the street. Some of God's people are afraid to take a prayer group. They're afraid to disciple somebody. They'll go so far. And I get it. It can be a scary thing. You'll never step out to do something for God that, well, God won't have your back. I've had people that said, well, you know what, Bob? I'm really afraid to disciple somebody. What should I do? I said, disciple somebody. <laughs> well, what do I, my worst fear, my worst fear. Oh, the lion in the street. My worst fear is if they ask me a question that I don't know. What do I do then? I don't know. But I will find out. You act like it's some cardinal sin not to know the answers. I don't know the answers of all the Bible. There's Thursday night people ask me questions. I don't know the answer. But you guys are so stupid, I just make them up and you don't know the difference. Not true. My, my, my fortune is, I've done this for almost 50 years, and I've never had a question, <laughs> a new question in 50 years, probably. <laughs> but I'm telling you, I'm telling you, you're afraid. And then I tell them to do it, and then they do it, and you know what they always, I always get a phone call, always get a phone call. Bob, I just discipled so-and-so. I'm so excited. Can I talk to you? No, I'm busy. I'm afraid right now. I can't talk to you. <laughs> I, 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 I need it. I want to tell you this. Can I tell you? Yeah, go ahead and tell me. Okay, tell me. And I want to, uh, I just, I listen, because that's my job. And he said, I tell you, I met with so-and-so tonight, and I discipled them. And I'll tell you what, I, I, it's just like I don't know what happened. 
It's just like I started remembering everything that, I mean, when every question that they asked, everything that they said, it's just like the Lord gave me everything I needed to know. And I just wonder, I am so excited. I, the greatest thing I ever did was disciple somebody. And I'm thinking to myself, yeah, you only waited 47 years before you do it. You're going to die next week and it'll all be over. I, I'm thinking to my, and I'm saying to myself, that's exactly what I mean. You were afraid of the lion in the street that you don't have to be afraid of. That book will preserve you in any given situation. It'll preserve you. It'll preserve you. You don't have to worry about it. You just say, God, that's what you want me to do. I'm going to do it. And if I fail and make a mess out of it, to God's glory, be your fault. He ain't going to let you fall. And there'll be times that you'll walk away saying, boy, I did a terrible job. Oh, you're kicking yourself. I did a terrible job tonight. And then you'll get home and a couple of people will call you that you were working with and they'll say, I just want to thank you. That was the greatest thing I ever heard tonight. And you're saying, yeah, it was, wasn't it? <laughs> Lying in the street, walking up and down, roaring at you. Oh, I'll go into Christianity just up to the ankles. Ooh, I'm not going anymore. There's a lion in the street. Ah, you don't worry about that. Somebody says, there's a lion in the street. Where's he at? God's people are afraid of everything except what they ought to be afraid of. And what you ought to be afraid of more than anything else in life is not fulfilling what God saved you to do. Paul said as a Christian that we should be boldly take our stand for the things of God. In Acts 13, 44, they were preaching and, and uh, they didn't like what they heard. And so they started giving them all kinds of problems. Verse 46 says, then Peter and Barnabas Wax bold. And he said, it is necessary for us to give you what we're going to give you because God wants to give you a chance. Now that we've given it to you, it's on you. We're out of here. That's bold. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 14, it says, And many of the brethren, Paul says that he was in jail, and many of the brethren took comfort in the fact that he was in jail, and it gave them a boldness because they were saying among themselves, if he's willing to go to jail... For the cause of Christ, what ought we be doing? First Thessalonians 2 Thessalonians 2.2, it says, But even after that we had suffered before, we were shamefully entreated. As we know at Philippi, we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. There's always, hey, whatever you're going to do something for God that's going to be meaningful, there's going to be contention. Make friends with it. Don't be afraid of it. That lion in the street means nothing to you when you have God and the Word of God in your life. He's going to preserve you. He's going to preserve you. And the prayer of every Christian, every child of God, should be Ephesians six nineteen, where it says, And for me, that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. Never fear the lion in the street. Well, three great verses with five excellent principles for all of us. One, pure in our heart as to our motive to serve the Lord. Two, grace and truth makes us God's friend doing the ministry His way. Three, preserving of His word 
his eyes, searching us out and preserving us through his preserved word of God. Four, knowing and understanding that nothing or no one against us will ever stop us because the Bible says they'll be overthrown. Five, never being afraid, always having a confidence and boldness to be all God wants you to be. That's the key.